broadcasting from the historic Hayburn building in downtown Louisville. It's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We believe a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current train wreck system that values profits over patients and leaves half of us with medical debt. And we're a longstanding member, a partner, community partner with WFMP 106.5 Forward Radio. The views and opinions expressed on single payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the station and Kentuckians for single payer healthcare. Single payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. WFMP 1065 is an all volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Join us forwardradio.org. Mike? Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn. <clears throat> Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments that I might make during this program represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. This is Eugene Shavley. Uh, what I say on this program represent my personal views and do not represent the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville, nor Taylor Regional Hospital. Well, our, our topic for today is Medicaid, which is uh, a mind-bending, <laughs> complex uh, health issue in this country. And we're fortunate we have two guest speakers uh, Barbara Casper, a retired physician who spent many years treating the Medicaid population, <clears throat> and Dustin Pugel, a, a senior policy analyst. So we're going to get two perspectives on the Medicare issues. So let me introduce both of them, and then we'll give them an opportunity to make some comments, and then we'll move on with the program. As I said, Barbara is a retired physician. She uh, received her medical residency training and was a faculty member at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, <clears throat> came to the University of Louisville in a medical department in 1998, and has spent most of her career treating underserved and um, under uninsured uh, patients, and she is going to discuss the Medicaid issue from the perspective of a physician treating this patient population. Dustin Pugel is a senior policy analyst with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy uh, with a focus on health policy and economic security. <clears throat> he worked for Blind uh, uh, Build in Lexington, and Dustin, when you're on, if you could I, I'm not sure I know what that is. Maybe you could explain that to our listeners. He spent two years uh, in a policy research assistant for the Commonwealth Council on Developmental D Disabilities. And Dustin is going to discuss the Medicaid issues from a policy standpoint. So um, <clears throat> Barbara, ladies first, we're gonna give you the first opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like. 
for as long as you'd like, and then we'll get Dustin on, and then we'll get the, the conversation will begin. Um, well, thank you very much for allowing me to participate in this important forum. Um, I, I, as uh, Dr. Flynn mentioned, I uh, spent most of my, actually my entire career, I practiced for 35 years, both in Tennessee and in uh, Louisville and treating um, underinsured and uninsured patients. So very familiar with the um, barriers that people faced in order to uh, get to care, some consequences of them choosing not to access care because of concerns for, for cost. Um, I uh, practiced here prior to the expansion of Medicaid that um, happened as a consequence of the ACA. And I was very grateful that our state chose to expand Medicaid under uh, uh, Steve Bashir's, Bashir's administration. Um, at that time, he instituted a, um, a program called KNECT, which was actually a sort of a computer-based internet program, which allowed patients to access Medicaid, find out if they were eligible, and there were KNECTERs that helped them to actually negotiate that. So as a consequence of that, many of my patients who had time been uninsured, now had insurance through Medicaid. And um, the difference between their medical care in general and what I saw is sort of population-based, just as an anecdote, but also with individuals was just amazing. Um, I remember one patient that I cared for who was um, a young guy in his late 40s who'd already had a couple of heart attacks, had high blood pressure and high cholesterol, was often not controlled on his medicines. And um, he got Medicaid through the expansion, told me it was the first time in his life that he had ever had insurance and said to me, doc, you know, I know you think I just wasn't taking my medicines, but I just couldn't afford them. And he said, now I can and I'll, I'll take my medicines. And he said, and I wanna stop smoking and I wanna get colon cancer screening. Uh, he must've been in his fifties. And um, I have to say that I had to leave the room because it made me tear up. I thought I was gonna um, cry in front of the patient, which was probably not the best thing, but just the emotional aspect of this man who kind of was labeled non-compliant and actually the it was non-compliance due to lack of access. So I think we forget actually what the um, economic or the, the salary or the pay cow um, or the minimum income level to be qualified for Medicaid. And uh, right now in Kentucky for a single person it's $18,075 a year. So, even prior to inflation, I would say that it would be uh, almost impossible for most of us to pay rent, buy groceries, pay for medical expenses out of pocket, um, or insurance to purchase insurance at income level. And so I think that expectation, I mean, people eschew for poor folks, but this is really, I mean, people that are on Medicaid are really economically deprived and a family of four, it's $36,908. And just, just to draw um, an, uh, a comparison, um, apparently our legislators who work only part-time um, for the, during the legislative sessions make about $60,000 a year for that. So obviously most of them have jobs outside of that, but they make more than, well, more than uh, a family of four 
um, would would make in order to qualify for Medicaid. So I think um, uh, you know the concerns I have with uh, the upcoming recommendations to cut Medicaid uh, benefits um, are that we're going to send people back into what I saw before, which was um, suffering, um, premature death, um, and an inability to actually um, take care of themselves. Uh, most of the patients I saw were actually working. Um, and those that were not usually were grandparents that were caring for kid, uh, grandchildren, um, or people that were caring for um, an elderly parent with medical issues, um, or had significant medical issues themselves and were just unable to, to work consistently. So I think the idea that people are just sitting at home and collecting health benefits is really not accurate. And so I, I think we need to uh, dispel that myth too, because um, most of the people I took care of uh, were working some of them two and three jobs and still qualified for Medicaid, which tells you um, how poorly they were paid. Uh, Dustin, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, maybe I could ask you for uh, to give our listeners a, a little historical background of how Medicaid got started back in the mid-1960s, as well as whatever other comments you'd like to make. Yeah, thanks for having me, and it's good to be on with Dr. Casper um, again, actually. Uh, back in 2017, we were on Kentucky Tonight trying to push back against the um, ACA repeal efforts in Congress and um, the plan in Kentucky to implement a work reporting requirement that would have led to a lot of, a lot of hardship. So. Um, I, we should we should keep doing this. We've had a successful run so far. <laughs> That's right. Um, so so yeah, my name is Dustin Pugh. I'm with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. We're a nonpartisan nonprofit research group out of Berea, but we work all over the state, um, and we primarily work on state policy. So as you mentioned, my um, area of expertise is around health policy and, and other economic security programs like food assistance, cash assistance, unemployment insurance, things like that. Um, so yeah, I think your, your question is spot on, just looking back to why, why Medicaid exists to begin with and, and, and what it's for. So Medicaid was a part of the Great Society package back in the 60s that um, then President Johnson signed into law. Um, it was really pri primarily originally uh, designed to, to be a safety net for older folks and kids primarily, but um, but really, that created a skeleton from which we fleshed out a really incredible health program since then. Um, much like the Medicaid expansion, it was also a voluntary program. So uh, even though it was passed in the mid-60s, the last state to adopt it was Arizona in 1981. Um, and I say that just because it gives me hope for states like Georgia and Texas and others who haven't yet expanded Medicaid because, uh, you know, it took a while and, and, uh, and they got there. So I think the persistent efforts of advocates in those states um, are going to pay off one day. Uh, so, um, you know, like I said, the, the program is originally um, what we call traditional Medicaid. Um, it was a program primarily for older folks and, and kids. But over time, we started adding new populations that were primarily condition based, um, not income based. So we started adding pregnant women. We started uh, including people with disabilities. Um, we started adding flexibility for states to be able to provide in-home care as opposed to institutionalized care for folks. 
And, and really the whole time there were advocates saying, you know, this, is, this isn't enough. Um, healthcare is incredibly expensive. Uh, uh, insurance companies can deny people outright based off their medical. You know, I think sometimes we refer to that as pre-existing conditions, when in reality, it's, it's just being a human and living long enough. Um, so, uh, you know, there were all these horrible practices. And so in uh, 2009, 2010, uh, there was an effort to, to expand healthcare and the sort of backbone of the ACA was uh, this expansion of Medicaid eligibility, not just based off conditions, but for everyone who earns at or below uh, 138% of the poverty line. And, and Dr. Casper already gave those income eligibility limits, which was really helpful. Um, and uh, much like traditional Medicaid, Medicaid expansion uh, was optional, especially after a, a court case. And so, and so that's what we have. And so now what we have is uh, an incredible program that I, I think of as like the Swiss army knife of health programs. It covers 46% of births in Kentucky. It pays for 70% of nursing home bills. It, it covers 500,000 children in the state, uh, 600,000 people through the expansion and another 400,000 or so uh, who are what we call traditional adults. So that's pregnant women, adults with disabilities, seniors, and others. Uh, we, we provide in-home services for 30,000 folks with disabilities and seniors. Um, and we do all of this uh, at a bargain rate <laughs> for the state. Uh, right now, the state is, is putting in about three and a half billion, and we're getting back about 12.2 billion from the federal government. So that's a, a, about a 78% uh, federal share of our spending on Medicaid for all these good things. Um, when we did expand Medicaid, uh, you know, we, we got an even better deal. So uh, Medicaid expansion, uh, we only have to pay 10% of, whereas we pay closer to 28% of um, costs for traditional Medicaid, uh, as it's called. And, and that money is uh, not just money that disappears. I mean, that's what we use to pay doctors, to pay pharmacies, to pay clinics. And then folks use that money to pay their bills, buy homes, cars, groceries. And so there's this multiplier effect, this rippling effect throughout the economy of every dollar we spend on Medicaid, generating between $1.30 and $1.80 in the broader economy, depending on, on how things are going. And things are actually even, even more generous right now because of the pandemic. Uh, way back in 2020, the federal government said, hey, we're going to, uh, we acknowledge the fact that caseloads are going to rise. We acknowledge the fact that state budgets are going to take a hit. So we're going to actually increase what we pay for traditional Medicaid by another 6.2 percentage points. That means instead of the federal government paying about 72% of our traditional Medicaid costs, they're paying about 78%, which is, doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about billions, that's hundreds of millions of dollars that we've been able to save and then sort of pour back into the program and, and uh, use in other parts of our state budget. So the string attached to that is that uh, during that time, the state's not allowed to uh, kick anybody off of Medicaid uh, unless they pass away, they move out of state, or they ask to have their coverage stopped for some reason. And so what that's mean, meant is that we've gone from about 1.3 million Kentuckians with Medicaid to about 1.6 million Kentuckians with Medicaid. Now those strings, that maintenance of efforts, what it's called, that's gonna go away when the pu federal public health emergency expires. And so what we're gonna see later this year in all likelihood is 
a lot of folks transitioning either um, off of Medicaid to other types of coverage programs, um, reapplying for Medicaid under new circumstances, uh, or uh, potentially going un uninsured. And that's something that I think we'll probably get into a little bit later, but the state's going to need to be extra careful in how they proceed with that. Um, and the federal government's given them 12 months to, to do that. And we think that there's a lot of good opportunities there, but um, that's sort of the state of play for Medicaid in Kentucky right now and, and kind of where we've come and, and where we're headed. That's great. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Gene, do you want to fire the first round across uh, somebody's bow here? Well, that was a great <laughs> summary. Uh, you, you answered almost all the questions I had. <laughs> uh, what do you think will happen when we start decreasing the number of patients on Medicaid? And not only what will happen to uh, patients, but what will happen to hospitals like uh, the University Hospital here in Louisville or rural hospitals who, who will have more patients who are not insured? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, just to get into some of the details, the state maintenance of effort is in place until the end of the quarter in which the public health emergency expires. So let's say, you know, next next month, the public health of the public health state of emergency expires. That means that starting July 1, the state would need to start unwinding that and, and redetermining eligibility for those folks. So uh, that is uh, unlikely to happen at this point. Most folks are, are trying to read the federal tea leaves as it were. And uh, we presume that the, the federal state of health, uh, sorry, the federal public health state of emergency will expire sometime in the third quarter, which means that they wouldn't have to start unwinding folks until um, you know, the, the beginning of the fourth quarter. Um, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services sent guidance to states telling them they've got 12 months to do that uh, and don't have to kick anyone off immediately. They can start bringing people back into their normal redetermination processes and slowly try and find out, like I was saying before, who, who is eligible for Medicaid, um, uh, who are on the rolls, so that uh, who they need more information from to determine if they're still eligible. Uh, if you're not eligible, if there's a potential for you to get uh, boosted subsidies on the health insurance exchange, um, which is, you know, connect here in Kentucky that, that Dr. Casper was talking about. Um, or can we, can we point you in another direction? Do you have employer coverage that you can use or, or whatever else? Uh, obviously, like you were mentioning, the big concern is that folks are going to fall through the cracks. Um, you know, when we expanded Medicaid in Kentucky, uncompensated care fell by two thirds in the state. Um, hospitals operating margins increased and they increased especially in rural hospitals. Um, now some of those operating margins are still very thin, um, but that at least they, they moved in the right direction. So um, in turn, the, the concern is what's going to happen if uh, a lot of folks do fall through the cracks and we end up with you know more people without insurance. From conversations we've had with the state, that, that's not their intention. They don't want that to happen. They wanna make sure that uh, they catch as many people as they can within Medicaid, but then for the folks who are no longer eligible, find other coverage options for them. Um, we're gonna track their metrics on, on terms of how many letters they're sending out uh, for, for new information, uh, what their call wait times are like, um, uh, how many, um, 
sort of bounce backs they're getting from folks who, who don't respond in time. And so we're gonna, we're gonna follow that, but we're also gonna work with the cabinet ideally to try and make sure those processes capture as many folks as possible so that you know, we don't end up in, in this sort of um, worst case scenario. And I, I don't think that's gonna happen in Kentucky. I do think that um, we're gonna end up with uh, about as many people covered as we did before, just not with Medicaid. All right. In that same vein, uh, let, let me ask both of you to comment on this, some of the, the specifics of this el the eligibility criteria, because the little bit that I've learned about it, uh, you know, it's just insanely complicated. Barbara, let me let let's let you go first. And then, Dustin, if you could you could follow. But just give us a, us, not just us, but our listeners a sense of you know, what the process that someone has to go through to get um, qualified, I guess that's the best best way to describe it, uh, for Medicaid. Uh, Barbara? Um, so I, I have to say that I don't know the specific steps that, that an individual would need to go through, and Dustin might be able to comment on that. But what one of the things that is um, had, was proposed and the governor has actually vetoed it, I don't know whether it'll be overridden in this current legislation, was uh, a work requirement um, in the past, there's been a requirement for like a $1 copay. And as our former governor used to say that people need to have skin in the game. The, the interesting thing about both of those is the cost of trying to manage that. So having someone come in and say, okay, yes, this person is working or volunteering. And please remember that I, I mentioned that mo my experience was that most people were working and those that were not had reasons they couldn't like caring for a sick parent or, or grandchildren, which then brings up who's gonna take care of the kids, particularly since we don't really provide good childcare. So um, uh, it's putting people in untenable situations. And also, and Dustin probably can comment better on this, I've seen some estimates of the cost of actually monitoring this are gonna be just ridiculous. And so, um, and the concern I think from the legislators is that they wanna catch the, the very few people who are apparently abusing the system. And I think that is a very, very small percentage um, and the consequence is going to be that a lot of people are going to just be knocked off because they can't complete the paperwork or provide the information that's needed. And I, I think Dustin probably has a lot more information on that, but it's, it's just uh, seems um, very punitive, honestly, um, uh, for what, what has been proposed by the legislature. Yeah, thank you. Dustin? Yeah, so um, Dr. Casper, I think, you're referring to the Kentucky health plan, which was our, it's called an 1115 waiver. It's asking the federal government to let us make some uh, changes to the Medicaid program that wouldn't normally be allowed. So fortunately that plan was struck down in federal court two times. Similar plans have been struck down many more times in federal court, as well as at, an, at the appeals level. Um, the Supreme Court was set to hear it, and then the Biden administration was elected. They started rejecting these plans, and the Supreme Court backed out because uh, it was no longer an issue. Um, it's clear that, that that plan was illegal. You cannot require work for health coverage in Medicaid. It's, it's outside the bounds of the statute. Um, you know, that, that has become really clear. Um, and yet, 
uh, House Bill 7 this session uh, sought to bring that back and, and require that the Bashir administration uh, requested to be able to make that same, um, that same program operable. Uh, fortunately, through some very rigorous uh, advocacy efforts and through some um, level-headedness from other legislators, uh, that, pr- that plan has been taken out. Um, the only thing left is, is really a, um, uh, a voluntary work community engagement program that Medicaid enrollees can participate in. It's not clear what that's going to look like exactly, but, um, but the teeth are gone, which is, which is the big deal uh, there. So, um, and, you know, the, like Dr. Casper was saying, the, the underlying assumption that people are not somehow engaged in the community just because they're receiving Medicaid is really bonkers. I mean, I, I don't really understand where that um, conception or stereotype comes from because, you know, you, you, being poor requires a, a, a very intense social network. It requires a lot of support. And, and frankly, it requires a lot of uh, work. I mean, I, I think folks have heard the phrase, it's expensive to be poor. Um, that's very true. And so most folks with Medicaid, including Medicaid expansion, are working. They're just working in jobs that pay so little they qualify for Medicaid. And that's what it boils down to. Well, well give now, us some of the specifics of, of what these qualifications are. I mean, the financial limitations, there's sure. family limitations, there's, there's uh, the, con- the medical conditions that you've mm-hmm. got to have in order to, to qualify so that our, our listeners have a sense of you know, what these folks go through in order to, to get qualified. Yeah. So, so really, uh, like we were mentioning before, there's two different uh, big categories of Medicaid. There's Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, which we often call Medicaid expansion, and that's almost entirely income-based. And then there's what we call traditional Medicaid, which sort of belies the fact that it's a bunch of different types of uh, eligibility op- options, all sort of lumped into, into one category. So that includes people who, who are a little bit higher income with children. Uh, and by higher income, I mean, you know, close to twice the poverty level. That includes pregnant women. That includes uh, very, very low income seniors. Uh, that includes folks with disabilities. And in each of these categories, you know, you have to, you have to prove that. You have to prove your age. You have to prove your uh, health status. You have to prove, uh, you know, what, what kind of nursing home you're in all that kind of stuff. And so that requires a lot of paperwork and back and forth. So ultimately these applications can take up to three months. In fact, we have special Medicaid programs designed to give coverage for three months because it takes so long. So there's retroactive eligibility where they will back pay three months of your uh, medical bills uh, in, in acknowledgement that it takes that long. But there's also something called presumptive eligibility where they'll give you coverage for three months if you get close to, uh, you know, meeting the eligibility criteria, um, uh, but, but you haven't proved it yet. So, you know, they think you're, you're presumed eligible, but you're not fully eligible yet. So they go ahead and give you a sort of temporary form of coverage while you fill out the full application. For expansion, it's really, an, you know, you, you still have a lot of paperwork and things you have to prove, but it's really income-based. So you have, to, you have to prove somehow that you earn at or below the threshold, which again is 138% of the poverty line. And, and to make it even more complicated, it's actually 133% of the poverty line with a 5% income disregard. So 
you know, if your head's spinning, just hearing me describe this for the last three minutes, imagine trying to like navigate it and apply for it and work through it. And that's where some of these, um, what they're, they're called connectors, sometimes they're called application assisters or healthcare navigators. That's where they come in to help sort of sit alongside you and work through that application process so that you have uh, all your boxes checked when you do that. Um, and they're trained to, to help work through that. They have some access to the back end of the system so that they can check to make sure the paperwork is going through. And the other improvement that's been, well, there's a couple other improvements that have been made over the last couple of years. One is that Connect is back. And instead of it just being for one or two health programs, it's for all public assistance. So the goal is to do an initial screening. And then through that initial screening, it identifies all the different programs that you potentially qualify for. And so it tries to duplicate your responses throughout these programs instead of having to apply for each of them independently, which is a really great thing. The other thing that's being done right now is a total top to bottom revision of the notices that people receive, in, including some of the language around the applications. Um, there's this whole notion within public assistance benefit administration that you can turn up or turn down the hassle factor of applying. And that results in more or less people uh, going through the whole process. So obviously administrations or administrators who want fewer people in public assistance can make the notice is really confusing, hard to read at like a, you know, graduate level reading <laughs> uh, level there, or, or they can make it easier to read. They can make it simpler. They can um, put the, the language, um, uh, you know, that's most important in bold. And there's all kinds of interesting uh, research to show what, what works best. So the, the administration right now is going through each of these notices to try and make them, you know, close to a sixth grade reading level. Um, to put the action steps in really bold, plain language, to provide really clear instructions for how to submit the paperwork you need, what kind of paperwork's allowable. And it's still complicated. <laughs> um, prior to this maintenance of effort, paperwork issues were the number one reason why people lost their benefits. Now, I, I listened to a bunch of podcasts so that I would be able to ask you both intelligent questions. And one of the one of the things that I came across in one of these podcasts was this family eligibility thing. And, and the discussion revolved around a family of four, uh, you know, two adults and two children and who who fit whatever the poverty line was. And then one of the children goes to college and how that would change, which I thought was crazy. The child goes to college, but since it's not living in the home, then mm -hmm. the, the financial status of the remaining three made it that they, they would no longer be eligible for Medicaid. But the kid that's away in college is still on the family payroll and they're paying their tuition and food and the rest of that stuff. And I mean, uh, <laughs> you know. I, I, you know, I'm not going to say the word I was thinking of saying because Mark will get nervous, but holy, you know what, <laughs> this is just, it, it's, it's, it was crazy. Is that, is that, is it, was that a legitimate issue? So, so that is a product of how we determine what the poverty line is. Um, so, so just to take us on another uh, sort of journey back into the 1960s, uh, back when the great society was being developed we needed some sort of income threshold to, to use and, and we needed it to be consistent across programs. And so 
um, you know, they were looking around for different oppor opportunities to, to, you know, create some sort of metric. And so they found this one study by uh, a food economist named Molly Orshansky at the USDA, who determined what a minimally nutritious food budget would be for different household sizes. And so they took that number and they said, hey, that's, that's pretty good. Let's just assume people spend about a third of their family budget on food. So we'll take that minimally nutritious food budget, we'll multiply it by three, and then we'll just adjust that for inflation. And that's what the poverty line is. It's a minimally, it's a minimally nutritious food budget for, for different household sizes from actually data in the 1950s that we've just adjusted ever since. In the meantime, there's all types of new expenses that didn't exist back then. There's phone expenses, there's technology expenses, housing is more expensive, food is actually less expensive. So what we have is a really outdated mode of determining who's eligible for these benefits. And, and part of that is based off household size. So if somebody moves out of your household, you know, they're no longer a factor in your uh, poverty level designation. And so you could potentially get, um, you know, these things taken away from you. Food, food assistance, uh, Medicaid, uh, if, you know, God forbid you're on uh, KTAP, which is basic cash assistance, any of those things. Um, changes in household size really do affect that that income threshold. Well, that's fascinating, Gene. Uh, why uh, does it have to be so complicated? And uh, who reads all these applications? Do they really read them? Uh, do they uh, uh, look at the fine print? Uh, and, and then the other issue is I have a lot of patients that don't even have a computer or internet. And mm -hmm. how, how do they... Uh, manipulate uh, or go through a system like this? So there, there's this um, concept that uh, the first Bashir administration, I think this administration is really trying to adopt, which is uh, they call it the no wrong door approach, which essentially means any way you approach the Department for Community-Based Services, which is the, the part of the cabinet that determines eligibility for these programs, any way you approach them is the right way. So if that means that you are mailing in an application, that means you're dropping into their office, you know, if, if it's not closed because of COVID, uh, if it means you're calling in on the phone or going on online, any of those options should work to be able to uh, go through the eligibility process. Now, that may mean that you need to wait on the phone. And last I've seen the average, the average call wait time is about 40 minutes. Um, that means that there are some that are a lot higher and uh, probably some that are, that are a little lower as well. But the call abandonment rate is like 25%. So one in four callers just hang up before anyone even picks up. They're trying to work on that um, by, by contracting out with a, with a call center, um, by trying to add on new staff. But there's a whole issue with public sector compensation that we don't have to get into that's making it hard to bring on new staff. Um, so you know, in theory, there should be many different ways for folks to be able to get their benefits. In practice, we all know that gets a lot more complicated. Um, connectors are a good way. If you, if you can look to find out where your local connectors are, um, they're a great resource to be able to sit down with and, and work through these things. I've got friends who are connectors who sign people up for health insurance at the bar. You know, like <laughs> they're very motivated and eager to help people. Uh, get coverage, um, but but you know you have to 
be able to find them. And, and then that's the, the other trick. So, so you can have your whiskey sour and get signed up for Medicaid at the same time. <laughs> Sounds <situation>. great. <laughs> uh, Barbara, uh, we've had two, uh, 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 two previous programs where um, we had Bob Voida, who works for the uh, one of the local uh, homeless population here in Louisville and, and, and Teresa Casey, who was a nurse practitioner who would <laughs> go out to the homeless camps and Pat Murphy, who, who runs a pain and addiction clinic up in New Albany. And, and they both were, were uh, talked about the importance of, of Medicaid in getting these two populations uh, some form of medical care. And I, I just wondered whether in your experience with, um, you know, with the underserved populations, you had any contact or had the similar experience that with either of the, the homeless population or the, the, uh, the addiction and population in terms of getting their health care? Um, so unfortunately, yes, I had had experiences with both those populations. Um, the interesting thing is once um, a patient comes into the hospital, which was often where I took care of them, so they had some sort of health crisis that led them to be admitted. Um, then Dustin mentioned earlier about the um, uh, presumptive eligibility. So they, the hospitals, I mean, obviously for them, it's important to get reimbursed hospital stay. So there was a real impetus for them to help these people get on Medicaid. So the, the good thing about that was that they could start that process and actually follow through with it and make sure that they got Medicaid. Um, and some of those patients actually would come to see me in the outpatient setting and because they had insurance and follow-up. Um, Barring that, then it really requires a, a system, you know, such Dustin mentioned going to the bars, well, maybe going to the homeless camps, maybe going to um, uh, the healing place here, for example, where a lot of people are recovering from addiction, trying to capture that group of people. So um, that's a really hard population to, to manage uh, because they don't have addresses where they can send things. They don't, and, and you mentioned, computer access earlier, I think that's a real problem. I will say that prior to the pandemic, a lot, some of my patients who, who um, didn't have computers would go to the libraries and utilize the computers there. Um, so there, there are some, some ways to work around that, but it is a very complex um, group of people to care for. And it really requires, I think, coming to them, going to them and, and meeting them in their space and trying to figure out how to help them to access care. Um, they often are very, uh, my experience was um, uh, wary, uh, particularly the, the homeless folks were very wary about the healthcare system and about what we were trying to accomplish. And it takes a lot to really engender trust um, because many of them have had situations where they, they really have not been respected. Um, and so um, a very tough, group of folks, but really necessary, but most importantly to meet them in their space, because by the time they came to us, they were usually having some pretty significant health issue that required hospitalization. So. Let me tell a quick story about uh, the legislature's knowledge about health care. And then I want to ask you both to comment about uh, one of the Medicaid activities in Georgia. 
<clears throat> there was a general surgeon that Gene and I know very well, and Barbara, you probably remember him, but I'm not going to say his name, <laughs> who many years, uh, he practiced for many years in Louisville. This was probably about 20 years ago or so. Developed some visual problems, uh, retired from general surgery, ran for public office, and, and was elected as a the House of Representatives. <clears throat> and about 20, 15, 20 years ago, he gave a talk the Louisville Surgical Society. And I mean, I came away with, I've told this story on this program on a number of occasions, but I came away with, with two, two uh, bullet points, I guess, if you like. One was he made the comment that uh, making laws is like making sausage. And we've all heard that before. And the example he gave was uh, was he sponsored a bill It went through the committee system. And when it, after it come out of the committee system, it had changed so much, he voted against his own bill. <clears throat> and the other thing he said, he was very clear about this, is the politicians um, uh, don't know very much about health care. And, and, and in dealing with that group of people, it is really, really, really a difficult uphill challenge because they've got more blind spots and ideological belief systems that really make it very difficult. So, so much for the story. <clears throat> now, it's my understanding that in Georgia during the Trump administration, and I'd like both of you to maybe comment about this, it was, it was described as an attempt to privatize uh, Medicaid, and this stuff is going on in a lot of different ways in Medicare as well. Uh, they, initially, there was a, a website, a simple site where somebody who was uh, trying to determine their eligibility to, um, to Medicaid could go. And then when, uh, when they decided that uh, they would um, allow a number of um, private health insurance companies to administer the health insurance program, that single site was taken down. Uh, each of these different insurance companies had a separate site and a, and a, and a, and a, a different program offering. And then, then they took this process, which was already insanely complicated as Duskin has described to us and made it even more complicated. So um, I guess my question is about, it has to do about the efforts to privatize this, um, uh, you know, public insurance, health insurance program and what either both of your thoughts are about that. Uh, let me ask another question along those lines. Uh, in the state of Kentucky, the majority of the insurance companies that administer Medicaid are for profit. Why should we, uh, uh, entrepreneurs be making money on poor people who uh, need help? It seems like that, that for profit money should be going uh, to patient care. It's a conflict of interest. Uh, Barbara, we'll yeah, let you so, go so, first. Uh, I'll just say briefly, I think, again, Dustin probably has uh, more bandwidth on this. I will say that, um, um, yes, that's a problem. And there are, I think, six uh, managed care companies, with one being nonprofit, that are options for our patients in Kentucky. Um, the interesting thing from the patient perspective, this happened many times, they would could be arbitrarily assigned to a, an MCO. 
And um, the consequence of that was that sometimes their physicians would not be on that panel anymore because as you know, uh, insurance companies often negotiate with physicians, institutions to try to get the best, the cost down. So um, they would find that they, you know, a patient we had taken care of for years in our clinic no longer could come there because, and they, and they tell me, and I would believe them, they didn't do anything to change that. It just arbitrarily happened. So that's a real problem from the standpoint of continuity for that patient. And also there, now they can request to change back, but, um, you know, again, it requires an extra step. It's that energy that um, going through the process to try to uh, change to a different company. The other thing that um, I observed, and there was one of those companies in particular that was particularly egregious for trying to get things for prior approvals. And you talk about waiting on the, the patients waiting online or on the phone for 40 minutes. So I had one patient that needed something pretty specific and I thought very urgently. And I was on the phone for an hour and 40 minutes trying to get through to someone and was told no. And my response was that I wanted to have that person's name because when this patient died from what I thought they had, I wanted to make sure the family knew who this was. And so that was the only way I got the procedure that she needed, which then confirmed what my suspicions were. And so um, I, I can tell you that they, they, they do that purposely. And I must have spoken to, I don't know, six different in that whole process, you know, well, I can't answer that, let me transfer you. And the hope for them is that I'm gonna get tired and hang up. And um, I didn't because it was the right thing for my patient. But I, I have to say that, I, I mean, I think not all physicians have that time to be able to do that. And so um, I personally have been um, privy to what seems to me to be the, the uh, impetus just to increase um, in the insurance companies by denying um, uh, care. Um, and so that's been my own experience with that. So I, I, I agree that, that I don't understand why we allow the profit for a private insurance company to be built into this system that's supposed to be taken care of for people. So I don't know, Dustin, do you have some comments on that too? Or? Sure. Yeah. Well, just I wanted to go back to um, the anecdote from earlier, you know, there, to quote a, uh, a different former politician, nobody knew healthcare was this complicated. Um, which, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, is, this is what you're dealing with. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, everyone knows that healthcare is this complicated. And um, and I and I'll also say that, you know, lawmakers are especially state lawmakers. They are folks who are well-known in their communities. They're insurance salesmen, they, they own a tire store, a grocery store, uh, they're a lawyer. You know, these are not uh, subject matter experts on, on anything other than what their profession is. So I say that really as an encouragement to folks who are, who are listening, you know, if, you, if there's an issue that you know a lot about, that you care a lot about, that you think there needs to be a change in, um, become a trusted person for your legislator or for other legislators because they they will rely on you because they don't have that, that subject matter knowledge. And there are opportunities, I think, to maneuver, especially in healthcare, uh, uh, around sort of what are traditionally very partisan systems. Well, well, let me ask you while you're still on that. It, 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 it are, 
are they are their minds open enough to listen to some of these issues that my experience seems to be watching the activities of the Kentucky legislature that they've got they've got some uh, some ideological and other blocks going on that really don't that supersede any kind of rational uh, th thought. This is these are just they almost religious beliefs about, you know, people who are who, who ought to have skin in the game and some of this other stuff. So I, I guess the question is, I mean, do you think these these people are open to listening to some sort of uh, uh, you know, intelligent uh, thought about healthcare. Yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll just give one example. Um, uh, Senator Meredith uh, is a former hospital administrator who, who now is obviously in the Senate. He chairs the Medicaid Oversight Advisory Committee. Um, he has been uh, really good on issues around Medicaid. He he's the one who uh, filed and got passed a bill that bans copays from Medicaid. Um, you know, he, he gets just, and this may be a good segue back to the conversation about managed care organizations, but he can't stand them. They drive him crazy and he makes no bones about it. Um, and has often passed her proposed legislation to cap the number of MCOs and has even talked about maybe moving over to a whole other system, uh, so that, you know, hospitals like the one that he used to run don't have to call six different companies uh, in order to figure out which one, you know, the patient's with and what their formulary is, which isn't as much of an issue anymore, or what their reimbursements are going to be. Um, now, just to talk to Kentucky's MCO system, you know, this was something that we did in 2011. Um, the ostensibly the idea was that, you know, if we have more companies uh, who are paid to run this for us, there will be more competition and that'll bring costs down. Well, cost down for who, I think is the question. Um, what they've done is they brought their own costs down. Now they are, they are only allowed to keep so much of what they get. So basically the, the state gives them a per capita payment um, based off the type of patient that they're covering. And out of that money, they're, they're allowed to um, keep a, a, around 10%. It changes every now and then, but it's around 10%. They're allowed to keep that much for, for profits, something called the medical loss ratio. Um, now, uh, there are ways that they can hide how much they're keeping for that purpose because they're allowed to spend some on like, you know, sort of systems improvement within their own organization and what that actually means. Like, I think there's a lot of uh, room for debate around. But, uh, you know, we, we I, and I actually think the last nonprofit got bought out by a for-profit company. So I don't think we have any more nonprofit MCOs in Kentucky. Um, we have one that's solely focused on uh, foster children uh, and, and people up to age 26 who are, who are sort of just out of the foster care system. The rest are, um, you know, just the, the, the rest of the Medicaid population, except for 150,000 who are called fee-for-service patients. And those are usually folks in nursing homes and, and some on the, um, what we call the Medicaid waivers, the home and community-based services. So what we've seen though, is that, you know, patient experience has gone down, uh, doctor's experience ha has gone down. The metrics for health have not budged uh, with, with the MCO system specifically. Um, and, and it ends up costing a lot. You know, the Medicaid administration budget in Kentucky is 3%, and yet there's a 10% profit margin for these companies. So there is a lot of conversation about how can we uh, move into a better system of delivering care 
um, outside of sort of this traditional MCO system, which doesn't work. Now, there are other states that go even further. So Arkansas is an example where instead of providing uh, health coverage through Medicaid, Medicaid pays basically for a voucher to go on the exchange and buy insurance there, um, which can be even, even worse potentially. So um, I'll just leave it at that. But, but just to say that, um, you know, I think there is a lot of conversation about moving away from it. Well, you know, this is these issues all are examples of, 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 we don't have a healthcare system in this country. We have a healthcare industry. And the focus of the healthcare industry is to suck money out of the system. Now, Gene has got some really good data, <laughs> which he's presented on this program on a number of occasions, that out of the three trillion plus dollars in healthcare in this country, 33, one third of that is not spent on healthcare. It goes to other all kinds of things from investor profits to CEO salaries to advertising. So I guess my question back to you is, is you know we we all are we represent the prospect of of a single payer system, <clears throat> which is exists in almost every other first world country, including countries like Saudi Arabia, which is not an example actually an example of raging socialism or United Arab Emirates. And they've all got some sort of a way to provide universal health care. They, they, they have some of them run the whole system. Some of it's just, you know, government run insurance. There's different levels of regulatory process. But and, I, you know, the question before I let Gene come on, do, do either one of you think that there's any any prospect in, in the foreseeable future of someone in a legislative position, making some sort of serious moves in that direction. We've got three minutes left, so I guess you're going to have to make answer questions asking quick because Mark's going to pull the plug on us here. So I, I just will say I am completely in support of single payer system. I don't think it can be done state by state. I think it needs to be a national referendum and, and implemented. For one thing, it, it you know, I just see the issues that we've had between the differential, but Medicaid expansion here in Kentucky versus our neighbor in Indiana and the people that had to travel back and forth for that and the same down in Tennessee where they didn't expand it. So I think that it needs to be a global, in, in the interim for our people, for my patients, I don't want them to lose Medicaid. Okay, though, because I, I see the benefits to their health. So I don't know, Dustin, you might have a comment on. Well, I, I'll, just, prospect. I'll just say we're talking about uh, Medicaid today that, you know, the advocates and, and I, we kind of, the other advocates, we joke that, you know, we would much rather a Medicaid for all system than a Medicare for all system. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's what it boils down to, whether or not we have a uh, a shot in the foreseeable future, however far in the future that is, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm hopeful, but you know, right now I think uh, chances are chances are dim, or whatever that eight ball normally says. Yeah, I think we're at the end of the lollipop here. I want to thank you both. Uh, the, these were really interesting and informative discussions that we appreciate it very much, Mark. Kentuckians for single payer health care. We work for that single payer system. We work to stop the Wall Street takeover of the Medicare program, and we oppose the privatization of the VA system. 
learn more about Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. I want to thank our listeners and please tune in next week where Mike and Gene will be back in the studio. Um, I, I think that um, Dustin's example of a legislator relying on uh, a constituent is really good. I think most may rely on their donors. And um, we'll continue this conversation next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you very much.